0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We're going to do a full two hours this time for a change. We've been doing one-hour shows since the pandemic hit in March, and we are delighted to unpack it a little bit longer. This is Cade Massey hosting. As usual, we got the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Good afternoon, fellas. How are you all doing? Good.
2: Doing excellent. Well. How are you doing?
1: Doing fine. Doing fine. The, the, the sports world has gotten more active, and we've gotten tired of trying I'm to I'm back in the our- world
3: where I now have to make choices of what – well, I have multiple screens. But if I didn't have multiple <laughs> screens, I would have to make choices of what I watch in sports now. This, yeah. is a,
1: this is a most excellent problem to have. And we've had the problem of trying to scrunch our whole sports conversation in half an hour for the last few months. And it's really gotten tough in the last few weeks. And so we're going to do three quarters here together as a group, and then we're going to find somebody to talk to in that last quarter. This week we have a conversation with Bill Conley about college football. We'll run that here at the end of the show. But between now and then we're going to do a little coronavirus in the top. This is what our practice has been for the last six months now. It's kind of the context of our lives, and we want to understand it. And then we'll roll into some sports in the second in third quarters. So, guys, as we look around the world of coronavirus, as you've experienced it and consumed news about it for the past week, things are happening. What has caught your eye in the world of COVID nineteen?
3: Well, so let me just put uh, I, the first one I put in our rundown for today was you know the IHME at the University of Washington, who's been using coming out with predictions of you know death tolls, et cetera. Um, in the last week or so, has come out with a prediction of 410,000 potentially U.S. people, citizens, are uh, dead by January 1st. Now, let me say what surprises me about that number. It's not because I don't think there might be a second spike in cases. I think there might be. But it, it's probably a theme I'm going to talk about a lot today. There are so many forms of uncertainty in the sense of, number one, it's possible a vaccine could come before then. Um, secondly, it's also possible that the therapeutics that I know Adi wants to talk about, because he sent us a bunch of articles on it, it could be that those therapeutics lower the death rate by twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent, and so it's possible that while their projections of the number of cases might be accurate, maybe their assumption of a constant death rate or even an increasing death rate, maybe those aren't that plausible. So that's what caught my eye. Mm-hmm. So just to put
1: that in real quickly, put that in context, they're predicting something like 3000 deaths a day in December, the peak we've experienced as a country so far has been 2300. And we're down to like nine or some 900 1000 something like that right now. So you're talking about a significant increase in deaths per day, despite these mitigating factors that you just mentioned.
4: Right. I think a couple of things I'm gonna to respond to. First of all, that that forecast has gotten a lot of a lot of uh, crap because many people think it's a very bad one. Um, remember, they also said it's their most likely scenario. So they, while they didn't say that that's you know the only possibility, that was the one they gave as most likely. Um, The other thing is, you know, the IMHA, they they made some funny, some really bad forecasts in the very beginning, really, really bad ones. And then they turned around and responded by saying, well, um, those were assuming that that we wouldn't take any measures. And this is not supposed to be that kind of forecast. This is supposed to be, as I like to say, averaged over predicted behaviors. Right. So my, my response is, I don't think we'll ever get there because if things get bad, we can go back to lockdown mode again. And that seems to have the capacity to really bring down um, rates very
3: fast if we go into an, an absolute lockdown. Oh, wait, Adi, I just yeah. just for our listeners on Morton Moneyball, um, if I were listening to the show right now, I'd say when Adi said most likely, like most people assume that means, well, he means like 60, 70%. It could <laughs> be their most likely forecast of 3%. I mean, mm-hmm. that's right. The yeah. whole distribution of yeah. forecasts that are very wide, wa- you know, it's. Like, right. So much mass over a, such a large area. So I just thought that would be an interesting topic. Also, just because it's most likely doesn't mean it's probable. That's right. Yeah, that's right.
4: And so, if I, it, the real question for us is, if we had to put a confidence interval around it, a prediction interval, would you put 410 in the interval? And I actually would probably not put it in the interval. I would. My interval would get close to that, but I don't. I would. I. I don't see that as a, as a as even in the top 90 uh, percent.
2: And it's also worth pointing out, and maybe it actually it speaks to kind of the comment you made before about how they got kind of slammed early on in their predictions by not taking into account sort of behavior, you know, so, uh, social behaviors, that there's such a huge range in their forecast now from, you know, like 280,000 up until I think like something like 600,000 at January 1st. Um, and most of that, you know, they, they sort of point out that, you know, the, the, that, that kind of span is under assumptions of either easing or people wearing masks or not. It seems like their models, at least now, are very heavily influenced by whatever kind of parameter choices they're placing on things like, you know, you know, so- social distancing, masks and stuff like that. So could it be that, the, you know, they went from a model that didn't take that type of stuff into account early on to one that maybe is like kind of overemphasizes those kind of aspects relative to kind of just the general dynamics of the virus now?
1: Interesting. I, I want to I take my usual role of IHME defender. So <laughs> just a quick, quick meta comment. I, I have appreciated how they've modified their forecasts over the last six months. They've modified their models. And I think that's the real – I don't want to judge them too harshly. for. And I don't think you were, Audie. You were just pointing out yeah. a particular aspect of what they got wrong early on. Right. But everybody got it wrong early on. And mm-hmm. what they've done in kind of the scientific way of learning and, and modifying and going and learning again and modifying again. And most models have gotten a little more complicated over time. And as Shane says, now they are explicit about, well, if the mask policy stays this way it's one thing. If the social distancing stays this way, it's another thing. And that's, that's very helpful from a modeling perspective. So I know they're not perfect. And I I, I'm just going to point out this one feature that I've, that I've really appreciated about how they've done things over the last few months.
3: Maybe one thing also to build on Adi's point, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had, Marika, you've been talking all along about, you know, in some sense, what's measured the best in all of the data we have, maybe deaths are measured the best, you know, maybe then hospitalizations, but it could very well be that the reason that's not their reason but it could be my reason why 410,000 could be in my use, 90%, sure, 90% confidence interval is, maybe the number of deaths we've had so far is much higher than the 189,000 that people are saying right now. Now I know that's not what they mean. But I'm just saying, it's very possible that what we've observed so far is not accurate. It could also well be that we're going to get. It's not about more accurate testing. It's just about what well, could be more accurate testing. But we could be get. We could get more widespread testing, which could actually lead to. Um, you know, we that number could be plausible.
1: Real quick clarification: For what reasons would we not be observing deaths correctly?
3: Someone dies. Um, someone dies, and they haven't been tested, and therefore we don't know what they died of. or they died in their home. They didn't die at the hospital. And so there's lots of, in some sense, um, causes of death where if the person and and, or the person was tested and it's not linked, you know, this is a classic linkage problem. The person died, they were tested, but their death isn't linked to their data. So that's another possibility.
4: Yeah, there's, but there's good ways to kind of at least get the general trend because you can look at excess population level deaths. So CDC tracks deaths just monthly around the country. And, uh, we're up about 200,000 deaths just from what we normally are at this point of year. And so there it is. It's almost, it's almost like it just almost matches too well. I mean, it's off by about ten to 10, 12,000. Um, and, and there, but you know, then there is variation in that every year. I mean, a flu season can be right. as bad as, as 60 to 90,000 and as, as good as 10 to 30,000. And there is variation, but mostly other things don't vary much at all. So um, the other causes of deaths in the United States are pretty darn constant at the level of the population that's well, a great something that point. bumps around
3: yeah that's okay a great point
1: well we've we've talked to all, all, from the beginning we've talked about the fact that if you that if you get coronavirus you want to get it as far away from now as possible mm-hmm. and 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 mainly because we're going to get better at treating it and we saw what a disaster the poor countries that had to deal with this in the early days had as they didn't know what to do and we've learned more and more there was big news this week on steroid treatment, which I think we kind of knew to some level, but it still received a lot of attention. And then, Adi, you you set this thing around about vitamin D. And I mean, it's a small study, but my gosh, the results were were I did.
4: So, so let me say just a couple of things. So dextromethazone has been talked about for a while, but what came out was a meta analysis of about 15 different studies. And that's the problem with small studies, even if they are placebo controlled trials, replication is an issue. But when you have 10, 12 of them, and they basically all say the same thing with about the same effect size, it's a huge win. It's about a 25 to 30% reduction in, in mortality rate. Um, this is the
1: steroid. This, this is, is the steroid.
4: steroid. And this is among people who are really in bad shape. So it's right. ICU level. level. Ill. So it's really, it's re- it, it, it doesn't work if you're, if you're just a, a general hospitalized person. It's if someone who's really in, in the throes of a very bad immune, immune response, an overactive okay. immune response. Because steroid pulls it back. So that seems to just be confirmation of the early results were really valid and true. And that's great. Now, the one okay. I, the thing, that the, the vitamin D hypothesis, I'll tell you what the study is what shocked me about it as I tell our listeners what the study is, is that nobody's talking about this. So what right. see, I'll just give the, it's very simple. So it's a placebo controlled t- randomized trial. That's like gold standard, right? Yes. Uh, and which is you can't, that's how you should design it. It's small. So it's 76 patients. Um, 50 of them were given the treatment. The treatment was high dose vitamin D and the control was 26. It sounds small, right? And so generally have very little power to, with that kind of small. People would just right. laugh it off. But get, get a load of this effect size. Among the people who were treated, one out of 50 were, ended up in the ICU. Everybody was in the hospital. To participate, you had to be hospitalized. And the people who were not treated, the control, it was 13 out of 26. That's just epic. I mean, you don't see effect sizes this, this
1: large. 5% versus 50%.
4: It's just insane. Or 2%. 2%.
1: Versus
4: 2%. You know, and so for, for me, it's like what shocks me is it's obviously making some rounds because I, I pulled it off of Twitter, which is which means it's not like, um, and then other people have heard of it, but I, I put it into a search engine. I said, who's talking about it? And there's a bunch of observational studies about vitamin D that say similar things, um, and, but vitamin D, just deficiencies, just natural deficiencies in the population. Um, but this is an actual experiment to try to treat it.
1: So, hold on. So, tell me a little bit about, what do we know about why vitamin D? And, you know, usually to the non-medical people, we're like, what, are they just throwing crazy stuff against the wall and something works? Or no, someone out there had a theory on why vitamin D would be relevant to this particular illness. So, what, what is that?
4: Um, I think we should oh. get a doctor on to try to explain this. Um, I don't know much about it, but there is a theory. There is one. I can't, I can't tell you.
1: <laughs> so I th- I think it has to do with the vascular. We, it's not a respiratory thing. It's a vascular thing. This disease should be, a va- it's, we should think of it as a vascular thing. And it helps with, you know, the way veins treat this stuff, but, but I could be even wrong about that. And I'll, well, shut I'll up just now. say one thing, the way you
3: get vitamin D people is through the sun. Well, and- I was just about the comment. So let me build on what Adi's saying. So <laughs> it's actually, my guess is if you measured people in early March of this year, Mm-hmm. And then measured people in let's call it early August, early September of this year. You would notice a much larger fraction of the population. In fact, I was talking to my doctor about this with oh. vitamin D deficiency, mm-hmm. because people have not been going outside as much. Mm-hmm. Um, they've not been getting as much vitamin D, and um, so number one, it would not surprise me if, um, in some sense, in this case, that's the problem has become exacerbated by the disease by COVID. That's number one. Secondly. My question is: It is related. Um, unlike things like hydroxychloroquine, which people have shown can actually have deleterious effects, even given the small samples, Adi, that you talked about, why wouldn't there be a recommendation right now for people to start taking vitamin D? Like, what would be the harm? Like, is there a harm by taking vitamin D, even if your body's producing enough of it?
4: So, I'll, I'll try to answer that as best as I know, and you can respond. Um, first of all. A vitamin D by pill is not that easy to absorb as from what I understand, and this is a particular kind of high dosage dosage pill that in fact has a name for it, um, and it's not readily that available. Um, the sun is great, um, and if you, anyone, if you're looking at me right now, you're going, "Man, you're tan!" You're tan, <laughs> and that's because I've been doing a lot of bike riding outside, a lot of outside. That's my that's my response to this, by the way. And it's not I'm not I'm only half joking. I'm really trying to spend quite a bit of time in the sun. That generally works, uh, but that of course has negative consequences. You you know you can you can get other other issues by being too far out in the sun. Um, so that's all I know. If you guys have
3: No, I just haven't read a lot of studies that suggest that taking vitamin D is a bad thing. So, you know, and again, maybe it's also, Adi, it relates to... When you take it. So maybe it has low effect if you're not yet infected. Like it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID in any way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't have an effect in early stages. But either way, it's enough. Let me just say, it's not unrelated also mm-hmm. to the topic that people are talking about now, which is ending phase three trials early. And here's what I mean by that, which is you know, you guys remember this, but I remember in my biostat classes as a doctoral student where you basically say, so if the data is this, what would the rest of the data have to look like for there not to be a significant positive effect of let's call it the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. So there is a point, it's not illegitimate statistics to stop a phase three controlled trial and say there's enough evidence to suggest that this thing is going to be effective. It's
2: it, it, not for, the usual way in which you, you know, the, the history of, of stopping phase three trials, that's not usually why you stop them. Right. It's usually that some dealt unanticipated really deleterious right. effect right. has accumulated. Right. So, Um, I think that probably that's more the tradition of stopping trials. But I agree if you've kind of almost like, you know, essentially statistically ruled out a not, you know, the possibility that it won't be a significant effect. You know, there's no, you know, you could, especially in a kind of time pressured situation like this, you could certainly stop early.
4: So I heard a term from a Jeff Morris, who's the new head of the Penn Biostats. He he calls it wartime medicine. And you have to... Wartime medicine and wartime rules for medicine are different than the non wartime rules and we're just trying to figure that out Um, And so what you're essentially saying is is this wartime medicine rules and how does that compete? And in fact, I I, I finally found out from him exactly why plasma um, Why there was pushback from the FDA kind of approving plasma as a standard course of uh, of treatment And the issue is not because they didn't think it worked. The issue was there wasn't um, because it wasn't placebo-controlled trials Um, It would then push out other things because it becomes it becomes to the top of the list of things to try. And they didn't feel the data was sufficiently strong for it to be pushing away, uh, pushing out from the picture from patients. They're going to start demanding it. They're going to not, you know, it's hard. It's very hard to manage even. And in wartime, it's even harder to manage because there's so many treatments and possibilities. And uh, quite honestly, a shortage, believe this or not, a shortage of subjects for 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 uh, for trials. Well, that's what... It's
1: fascinating, and you know, as as grad students, when you run want to run experiments, you realize it's it's hard to run experiments. You got to collect data. And we then we started losing touch with that as we move away from that data collection process. We've heard in the last few weeks this 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 kind of consideration that I never would have come up with that it it matters in what drugs we give publicity to, what drugs we give approvals to. It matters in what kind of science we can subsequently do because the public reacts. It's a it adds complexity to an already very complex situation.
3: And so I'm going to bring up an issue that's, um, it builds on what Adi said, but it's not political in this sense, but imagine you run, like they've even talked about builds on your point too, Kate, about from having trouble bringing in subjects for these uh, experiments and trials from certain subpopulations like minorities, et cetera. Imagine you have enough statistical evidence to show that a vaccine, whichever one it is, has some mm-hmm. efficaciousness, for a given subpopulation, but not yet for everybody. Mm. So do you go ahead and say, I'm going to launch this for subpopulation X, but you and subpopulation Y, you can't take it yet, because we don't have enough statistical evidence to suggest that it's good for you or that there's no side effect. I could imagine that happening. and I'm trying to stay apolitical here, but that's going to be a big challenge. Yeah, it well, would be it also, impossible to have that conversation apolitically,
2: essentially. You know, correct among the powers that be. It is well, except
1: to- except for the fact that we we know that some demographics have been hit by this more heavily than other demographics, and so mm-hmm. I would hope that that would be a more palatable conversation if the group that it was helpful to was the group that if, if, the if, if,
2: if the most vulnerable groups were the ones that yeah. it worked for yes but if, if, imagine but I mean, another scenario yeah that's well, right. least that's vulnerable right. groups well, so for well, which well, this works the best
3: but, but those are actually, also the ones that it's hardest to get the data for in the trial so let me just right. say even though yeah. those it might be efficacious for those those are the ones that's going to be hardest to prove so, so the the
4: vitamin d study was done out of spain um just to, to to clarify that and i first heard about vitamin d from from actually a radio lab episode and they didn't run away from the uh, from the political side of this because the the subpopulation that is most hurt by this by the virus is in America, actually, and in England as well, is the black community. Um, and one of the plausible hypotheses is that vitamin D is much more likely to defi- be deficient in the dark in darker skins uh, because that's because you need more time in the sun to absorb it. Apparently. I don't mm-hmm. know; I'm not an expert on this. Um, and so, it potentially could be a, a huge um, much more uh, variegated benefit. Um, well, that, maybe- That's
1: the kind of thing that normally I might want to dismiss because it's like, okay, can that possibly have, can that possibly be delivered in a sufficient dose in a non-medical situation? But given the, re- the results that you're reporting on that Spanish study, given the magnitude of those results, yep. it doesn't seem implausible. I mean, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't take that, that intense a dose. It's really, it's really something.
4: But the other thing is, of course, is men, the difference between men and women, which is, it's a, it's a classic Simpsons paradox um, because men and women are dying at about the same rate overall, but at every age, women are about twice as le- twice as likely to survive than men. So it's a classic Simpson's paradox. Because okay, women- Adi,
1: yeah, there, there are there are approximately five percent of our listeners who are with you and excited. <laughs>
2: Right, top,
1: and Half of them may not be interested, but Main, a,
2: you, you may need to clarify, a bit. I'll clarify. So yeah, no, paradox, take
1: it as a, take it as a chance to uh, remind, I, I, I us, will.
2: you know, what, why, don't I give,
4: us. why don't I give a sports example? Um, we can do it with, with basketball. You can take two shooters um, and, and one, one has a higher fielding, a fielding percentage, a scoring percentage than the other. Yet the one who has the lower scoring percentage is better at the rim and better at three points. And in fact, is better at every distance. So how can someone have the lower percentage? And if you know basketball, you know, obviously, well, you're obviously taking a lot more shots under the post and four or fewer from a distance. And that's why you get a higher overall average. So that's a very easy example of where the better shooter at any distance can aggregate end up being worse because of because of um, misallocation. And similarly, now apply that to
1: the. Now apply that to male-female fatalities. So
4: male-female fatality. So, uh, so what you have is uh, at every age, women are much more likely to survive. They have, their death rate is a lot lower. But death rate is very highly correlated with age, extremely highly correlated with age. And the, higher, the older you are, the more likely you are to die. And guess who lives a lot longer? And guess which, which – so women populate much larger frequencies, the 80s and 90s group overwhelmingly. And so their death rates are extremely high and men were even worse in that, in that category, but there are very few of them. So right. that's how they, that's how it, it kind of averages. That's a classic. And in the, this I, case, I,
1: it's, it's, it's number of deaths that are, that are carrying the weight, not the number of people. It's an interesting, it's an
4: interesting,
2: yep.
1: case. Um, terrific, terrific. Always love us a good Simpsons paradox. So, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Eddie. Hey, before we end up the same way, because everyone's gone back to school in the last week or two, um, any experiences? Are y'all teaching right now? Are you getting any reports um, from your own classrooms or from your kids about how the, the, the learning has been going in, in, in this weird time? Well, yes, I, no?
4: I think I'm the only one uh, in teaching right now. Is that correct? Yeah, I, you are too. Uh, I am too. Yeah. You are too. So it's just Kate, you and I are teaching. I know that Eric
1: and but you're Jane teaching Jane undergrads. Are, are so I think awful. I'd love to hear how it's going with the undergrads.
4: No, I'm not. I'm teaching the MBAs, um, uh, although I have my uh, seminar and we're just going to go online as normal. Um, we're going to probably start up next week. Um, that actually seems some of those these activities seem easier because scheduling is a lot easier than it used to be because right, we didn't right. have to find a room. And, and, yeah, right. and so I believe certain things will be easier right. because of office hours are easier. Certain having, making appointments, I think, because online just gets rid of that. Some of that transportation oriented uh, Obstacles. Um, I'll speak to my students. They're very engaged. I, um, I, I'm not uh, uh, unhappy about that. Um, I've completely redesigned my class in order to um, kind of fit with this online structure.
1: Oh, Give me uh, time. I'll- I'm glad to hear that those guys aren't like protesting. You know, there, there was there's, you hear these little unhappiness stories here and there, especially with our incoming MBAs. I'm glad they're not like sitting there with signs.
4: Well, we'll find um, out. I, I, Give me some time. I,
1: I, I will say one thing about, uh, I have found, this is my second time around because the spring brought some of this as well. But um, as a teacher, it's not as diminished an experience as I thought it would be. It's very different, of course, but it is, it is much closer to par than I would have thought it would be. There are also some things that you have available to you on, in the virtual environment you don't have in the classroom. So you can do, you can collect data real quickly. You, you can stop and ask people, hey, am I going too fast, too slow? And, and just get a sense and a read you know, precisely, objectively in a way that you wouldn't in the classroom. I'm not saying it makes up for it. And I'm not saying our experience counts as even as much as the 70 students or whatever. But I've been a little surprised at those things. I've been delighted that, that, they, that they do exist. I love the comments.
4: Um, they talk to yeah. each other and and to me and on the sidebar and you don't have that in class um, right. that would be very disruptive if they were doing that in class and now it's terrific in fact i'm going to teach again tomorrow and i'm going to ask them before instead of just raising their hand virtually put their question in the chat and then raise it and then I, and then everybody could see it i can respond to it and, and,
1: and adi another benefit of that at least within zoom you can print that from you print, you, mm-hmm. print, don't print anything. Right. you can capture that transcript they give you a transcript of the chat yep. and you yep. can post it so i mean it's really hard to keep track of that thing real time but it's not it's a pretty rich data source to look at after the fact
2: yeah i mean the chat i'm glad you brought up kind of the chat feature because i i you know when we go, I, I i'm not online teaching now but i all, online taught in the second half of the spring semester when we all went online and I, I love that the kind of chat feature to ask questions. And then, you know, I mean, because, I you know, I can kind of keep track of that as I lecture and sort of like, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll come back to that question, you know, when I actually cover what I want to cover. you you know, for that. And then half the time there's another student that'll just kind of answer the question for me in chat. And so like, there's, you know, you, you're, you're both getting (laughs) like, you know, you're both getting some help with your teaching, but you're also getting that kind of engagement and and kind of fostering that interaction between students via the chat. I
1: think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right.
3: What I'm also interested in, Kate, is let's imagine one, another thing we could imagine doing. So let's imagine, you know, for your class, who's watching it synchronously, asynchronously, Who's watching it with their screen on versus off? Who's chatting versus not? And imagine you relate that to learning outcomes. And so you could easily imagine, matter of fact, I'm surprised Adi, being an empiricist, isn't doing this. (laughs) But you should, when I teach in the spring, now that I think about it, I'm going to ask if all kinds of things can come from the Zoom platform or BlueJeans, whichever Mm -hmm. I choose to use, and see if I can actually relate it to outcomes in the class. Because besides it being an interesting academic paper, because there's lots of people that care about online learning today, I think it could lead to best practices for faculty and students.
1: Well, and beyond that, even it's, 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 it's online meetings of any kind. It's not Correct. just the educational environment. I mean, a lot of our professional meetings are now in the exact same setting and we might have some lessons that generalize. So uh, w- one
4: of the things that zoom does not do for us is it doesn't tell you who has their video on and off, doesn't give you that kind of list. And if it does, I'm not aware of it. So I'm, ha- I have to go in, I'm going to have to data mine the transcripts, the chat rooms, and, and yep. but I don't have the ability to data mine the video. If, if we could do that, which is not impossible. That may be a company in the making um, because we have the video um, to just sort of give you those summary statistics. That would make it a lot easier.
1: Yep, yep, cool. All right, fellas. Well, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. And this the first four-quarter episode in six months. We've got three quarters to go. How exciting.
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
0: On Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter doing a full two-hour show today for the first time since March. Too many sports to cover in one half-hour segment, so we're going to give sports two half-hours. We just came out of the coronavirus first quarter. We have a couple of sports quarters ahead of us, and we finished with an interview with Bill Conley. want to let you guys know that you can always reach us at our uh, on our account on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is a great way to reach out. You can hit hit us up on email, too. All four of us, you you can find our emails in various places. We're always Happy to have email from you. You can also send us comments, questions via Twitter. At WMoneyball is our handle up there. Got the whole crew in here for one more half hour. We got the whole crew. We're going to lose Adi here in a second. He's got other things to do. But we got Adi, we got Shane, got Eric. This is Cade. Gentlemen, a lot of sports. Full slate of sports. I want to hear, especially before we lose Audi, what's going on with MLB right now? What's going on with the Yankees? I thought y'all were going to, like, roll over the league. I thought it was a smooth
4: uh, you, put it out
1: there, you You put it out there
4: front front and center Cade uh you're not even happy listen their stars are out um and I don't think they've been managed well but more importantly their bullpen just seems to be falling apart I mean that was that's what kept the Yankees just always in every game with the with the trio of Odovino and Britton and Chapman and their backups Wade and said I mean these guys were good uh, and but now they just seem to be falling apart and of course they're missing Judge and they're missing Stanton and Torres has been out and and uh and and um their third baseman is, it's just, it's not a good scene. Um, It's just, it's, it's embarrassing. Do
2: you think the bullpen woes are more a case of just, yeah, I mean, I I guess just underperformance is one potential answer or mismanagement or somehow in like, you know, they've also lost a few starters. Are the, are they pitching kind of, are they kind of being used more intensely than they
4: usually would be? It doesn't seem to be, they just seem to be, you know, flailing. And I don't know what potentially why, I mean, it's, it's ugly. Um, i'm
1: so so sorry to hear that i really oh
4: yeah you're saying so, you know. no i mean i
2: mean it's it's ugly only in a relative you know, sense right funny. you could look over at the red Sox if
3: you well, re- truly want to see ugly right, Let, right let's go back in time though about a month and a half ago we talked about this on the air remember the the projections mm-hmm. that they gave for the number of wins that the yankees and the dodgers would have right, and right out of 60 games i think they both had them at like 37 or 38 was the over right. under yeah, You know, basically, well, they're going to, you know, if I'm just going to take 162, I was planning on them winning a hundred. So I'll just take this, the proportion of that. And there we are. Mm-hmm. And I remember going on the Yankees. I remember saying under, I remember saying under on the Dodgers. Uh, that may be wrong. That one may okay. turn out wrong. Yeah, Dodgers um,
1: are 30 right now.
3: Yeah. So they're going over. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day though, I mean, who would have projected this gets back to, again, my theme for the day, which was uncertainty uh, yeah, if you had told me Judge Stanton, uh, Torres, uh, Sanchez, um, guys are getting injured all over the place, then, yeah, I would have predicted the Yankees at best a 500 teams. So, I mean, right. that's that's what happens. Injuries are part of it. The, the part that still shocks me, and I put this as my number one thing here, was I just checked today. The Yankees, who I believe are 21 and 20. They're in the eighth and last playoff spot right now if the playoffs started today. There's two teams within a game of them, and they have the Yankees as an eighty. This is ESPN's Baseball Power Index has them as an eighty-nine percent chance to make the playoffs. Now, that seems ridiculous to me. Um, they're they're only a game up on the loss column. They've, I mean, unless you're going to use the prior, I mean, unless that's the the Yankees you're talking about. But that, the, of course they are. Why would yeah, they that, that must that be what the they're prior. using. Why yeah. would they use the prior? They've Dude, lost. What? They've gone like six and fifteen in their last twenty-one games. Why not use the Yankees that are actually on the field, not the ones one? Well, big. because we got a small
2: were, sample size on the Yankees that are on the Bayesian.
1: field. I thought Eric Bradley was Bayesian. Yeah. I am
3: Bayesian. I am updating.
2: If they were a game and a half, <laughs> <having> too much. <laughs> if, weight if, on the prior. if they were a game and a half up. <laughs> and this was a normal year, and we were at this point in early September. I'd be like, yeah, it's crazy to still be using a prior because we've seen so much of the Yankees this season. I'm willing to kind of, no, you know, move about, away from my prior. we
4: a
3: different team. This isn't the this well, isn't. The I mean, who's are they, they, they going to come
4: different. back? I mean, is Stanton yeah. or Judge is supposed to be coming back? Uh, LeMahieu was out. He's back. Uh, Torres, I believe, is coming back. And uh, you've got priors going in both directions because, yeah, they've got a game-and-a-half
2: lead on the – Baltimore Orioles of all right. teams. So, you, you right. got, if you go with your prior, you're going to expect a lot of movement in both any directions, you, right?
3: So I, any of you, That's I agree right. with that. So, any of you uh, willing to give me nine to one?
2: No, no, no. I mean, I, I'm not actually arguing nine with your one, overall point Let's that that it. probability nine seems one, a little high. The,
3: I want the Yankees to make the playoffs. I obviously do. I'll take the nine to one odds. Yeah. They may be going too much on prior, but I would certainly
2: argue that uh, in all of all seasons, this would be one where we'd still want to have our priors having some influence in early September. But that's my.
1: So I, I, I want to point out that there's just, it's just interesting. There are a lot of teams that are, are, are making their own storylines this year. A lot of interesting ones. Maybe it's just because it's a small sample yeah. and a crazy year, but, you know, the Rays are leaving that leading that division. The J Rays are like the second best record in MLB. Baltimore's not supposed to be five hundred. They're yeah. right there, which is good fun. Cleveland always Cleveland's one of the most reliable franchises in baseball. The White Sox are right behind them. Really? Where did yep. that come from? The A's. Look at the A's. Well, they're Got the, gotta most love reliable A's there. the Cubs. Yeah, those guys uh, are always
2: rely. <laughs> they're they're reliably in the mix, they're reliably surprisingly in the mix. I mean, no every money. year we're like, oh, how are the A's doing it again?
4: There they get. I say, yeah. I they should name a book,
3: write a book about the A's. Yeah, something. no, that yeah. honestly, that would be that would make a great case study. Yeah. I'm just going to comment on two quick things. One is, by the way, the Astros have the same record as the Yankees, not good, mm-hmm. not and good. And secondly, um, Nationals. horrible. Yeah, the, Nationals. The, se- the second thing, Shane, though, is you mentioned the Orioles. Here's the thing, though the Orioles only probably need to play 500 for 20 more games. Like, they don't need to do it for 120 more. They need to do it so, for yeah. 20 more. Yep. So you right. talk about, yeah, the Yankees right. over the Orioles, but they only need a small sample of which there could be significant yeah. randomness to actually outperform the Yankees in those 20 games.
2: No, no. And I mean, like, you know, we talked even before the season started that I, you know, I sort I, I of, I think I made some kind of vague statement. Like, of all the seasons – to have a dominant team, this is not to have a kind of dominant, a predictably dominant team miss the playoffs. This is the season, right? I mean, it it is kind of inconceivable to me that the Yankees would miss the playoffs, but if if it was going to be, it would be over a 60-game season.
1: That's right. If it was a
2: 162-game season, I would put the odds even lower on this type of thing happening.
1: So, fellas, on the baseball front, we lost a couple of giants in the game over the last week. So, Lou Brock and Tom Seaver, I know y'all are big Hall of Fame people. Give us your – take on the career that these two guys had. Lou Brock and Tom Seaver, you know, three of us were like hitting our peak baseball following childhood in the seventies when these guys were running the game, but give us, give us something on Brock and Seaver.
4: Well, Tom, terrific. I mean, he was extraordinary for so long. He was with the Mets for a long time, the Reds. Um, And he was the kind of pitcher you don't see anymore. Hard throwing, complete game, over 60 shutouts in his career, sub 3.0, lifetime era i mean 300 game winner this is a guy who was you know as a vintage type pitcher that you just don't see he's kind of like nolan ryan without the losses um so wow. you know that's interesting well he played for the astros come on uh, give him a little help he didn't have much support yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but still he was he was so consistent um for so many years and, uh, it's just to, to, see him pass is kind of for us because he's on some level, the first, you know, superstar whose career we, we enjoyed, and now he's passed yeah. away. It for That's us is like a lifetime marker. Um, so yeah.
2: And I, I sort of feel like, I mean, like the one thing kind of looking at his I kind of had to remind myself as Chris Sass, cause I was not, I, I didn't have the uh, opportunity to watch him as much live. Um, and it's just, it is, it's a testament, I mean, obvious to his high quality, but also to how much the game has changed. You know, I mean, like he, you know, I'm just kind of looking, you know, at, you know, his 1977 season, he had 33 games started and 19 complete games. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's insane. I, I mean,
2: you, I, I mean, like that would, that's, that would, that's beyond unheard of these days. Awesome.
3: awesome. Yeah, look, I- I, I always talk about the tiers of the Hall of Fame I think it's obvious Tom Seavers in tier one of the pitchers mm-hmm. I put up some stats on him, I even said a few besides 300 wins, a career ERA below three Um, a war, you can criticize war for whatever you want, is war's 109.9 which puts him I think at 20th all time and if you just, and if you thought about pitchers I know he's in the top five of all time and if you talk about wow. players who played after about 1930, he's definitely in the top five of all time, so yeah. he had a remarkable remarkable career Mm -hmm. um let me just shift gears to lou brock um i followed him very closely it turned out he was my one of my brother's favorite players my brother loved players who could hit hit and and run with amazing speed um lou brock was in my view i'm trying to decide whether i put him in the same era but something like a ricky henderson type player Mm -hmm. you know he wasn't a, a massive power hitter but he could hit for power um very consistent hitter, obviously he had the stolen base record for almost twenty years before Ricky Henderson broke the stolen base record. But the problem is in his first ten years of his career, he was playing at the same time as Aaron Mays and mantle and so and McCubby. so the problem is it's pretty hard to be seen as the greatest of your all time, or even a top tier oh. Hall of Famer, and I put Lou Brock oh. in the second tier, clear Hall of Famer, but in the second okay. tier, when you're playing with four or five of the all time greats. Okay. So
4: here, here's a, you bring up his ability. We everybody knows Brock for stolen bases, and but you point out that he was also a pretty good power hitter. Here's a bit of trivia that nobody is uh, aware of. Very few people, uh, the, pole, the old Polo Grounds was shaped bizarrely. It oh was, yeah, it was a Polo Ground, and in dead center field, it was about 500 feet. I think 500. about. Four, about 500. Lou Brock, I believe was the last person to hit one out of the park in center field oh in the Polo grounds. And it's so far. And you're like, it's not, you sure it isn't mental. I mean, he didn't play in the national leagues, but, but it's a, uh, it's remarkable that the guy who was known for stolen bases had that much power.
1: Yeah, that that's great. That's a great <laughs> anecdote. I would never have come up with that. That's amazing. All right. Well, sorry to see those guys go. Um, they, they gave us a lot back in the day. Um, on a, on a, on a on a shocking story over the weekend. Shocking enough that I was I was on the phone I was on the phone with my Wharton Moneyball co-host, mm-hmm. Djokovic, DQ'd. I mean, this guy had a cakewalk to Grand Slam DQ'd. I'm sure you fellas have a, a few observations.
3: I mean, so just a few observations. One is it's not really an analytics perspective, but it's 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 a non controversial in my view DQ. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. It, it there's a specific set of rules around let it. Me,
1: let me ask about real quickly about that, Eric. So, uh, you know, just seeing it, I, I wasn't watching it, so I just saw the first clip. And the first time you see it, I'm like, well, that was an accident. But when I talked with you about it, it sounded like there was some a, a, a precursor to it that kind of set the stage. It kind of changes the lens in which you look at what he did. Is that so, is that?
3: Yeah. Just two quick things about that. Number one, um, two games prior. Um, Djokovic actually had three break points to win the set and he didn't break. And then after that game is over, um, he took a ball and hit it as far as I can tell, as hard as he could into the sidewall. Now, if fortunately it didn't bounce up, there are no fans anyway. There's some cameraman that was right above it. If he had hit the ball a foot higher, he would have hit this cameraman and been disqualified then. Let me just say, and possibly if it had hit the cameraman as hard as he hit the ball, um, you know, he may have had civil charges against him. Yeah, right. So you could already tell things weren't going well. Then um, you, we all saw the replay of him hitting the ball. You you brought up the important word and the unimportant word, which is intention. It turns out the USTA thought about it and intent actually has nothing to do with it. And so whether you intentionally or unintentionally hit a ball and hit somebody, um, I think it was Darren Cahill, who's one of the commentators, he's Simona Halep's coach. He said, look, You're in control of the racket. You're in control of the ball. If Djokovic hadn't did what he did, the ball would not have headed towards the lines person would not have hit towards the lines person. That's irrefutable. Therefore by the rules, he's disqualified. Now, Of course the bigger impact of course is, you know, Federer 20, Nadal, 19, Djokovic, 17. There's no Wimbledon this year. So he's not winning that. Um, he's obviously not winning the U S open now. Um, He's at bet. Now he might win the French, but you could argue he's the third best player at the French. I mean, he hasn't made it to the finals the last few years. It's been Nadal and theme.
2: This so, is a pretty bold way of avoiding an Eric Bradlow asterisk on his career. Well, right? I'm
3: actually happy because I wasn't going to count this one anyway, and so good it doesn't count. He ain't getting yeah.
2: it. Yeah,
4: yeah. I think one, you know, one of the rules that just that I wanted to clarify. He didn't intend to hit the linesperson. No, but he did intend to hit it wildly. Mm-hmm. Correct. That wasn't an accident. And I, my understanding is the rules are that you can't do that. And it, and once once you are once you hit it like into the stands or out of the that's a disqualifying act right then and there. They obviously have some discretion. Maybe the fact that he already did it once before. And this time, of course, he hit someone. So you don't actually so he did intend to hit it sort of wildly, which already means you have a possibility of hitting somebody.
3: Yeah. So let me relate that to another reason why now I have to put some uncertainty in Djokovic reaching 20. It's an interesting story that John McEnroe told. Because obviously McEnroe, by the way, had been disqualified from the 1990 Australian, but for verbal abuse kind of thing. It wasn't for hitting a ball at somebody. (laughs) But he told an interesting story about how this could affect Djokovic. And I had never heard this story before. And you would think as much as I follow tennis, I would have. I think it's 1981. McEnroe wins the U.S. Open. Beats Borg in the finals. Borg had won five straight U.S. Opens. Okay. Borg is so upset. The nice guy of tennis. He doesn't even come to the ceremony where McEnroe receives the trophy.
1: Hmm.
3: He gets remarkable amount of ridicule from the press for doing this, as you could imagine, similar to what Djokovic is receiving now. And here's the interesting part of the story that McEnroe told. I'm not saying this is going to happen to Djokovic. Bjorn Borg never played a major again. Jeez. He Hmm. retired almost immediately after that. Now, I'm not saying that Djokovic is planning on retiring. I'm just commenting that this is the kind of thing that now, how certain are you that he's now getting to 21? And we're assuming, by the way, Federer, Federer doesn't win anymore. Mr. I was two points away from beating Djokovic at Wimbledon last year. But how certain are you now that he's getting to 21? If he, he's not, probably not going to win the French. So now, does he win the Australian this year? Does this set him back psychologically in some way? What what happens now? It's it's not that obvious. But I thought the Borg story. I never heard McEnroe say not only the story that Borg didn't come to the McEnroe's still upset about it to this day. The guy didn't have the courtesy to come when I finally beat him at the U.S. Open. But he told a story where he never played again.
1: Yeah, you, you these athletes are they're they're so on the on the edge with their performance, and especially in these highly competitive situations, that you something like that can get in there. You know we. I can't help but think about the Jordan Spieth um, Amen corner incident from a, year, a few years ago when he's riding not just on top of the golf world, but like lap in the field, dunks a couple in the water, and we haven't heard from him since. I mean, it's you rarely see something as dramatic as that. But you know, Greg Norman had his stuff in golf, and, gone. Mm-hmm. and yeah. um, you you do wonder, you do wonder, and he, uh, and he's had you know he's had some ups and downs. He's not been the steady guy that Federer and Nadal have been, and so you do wonder. Now, some people turn these kinds of incidents into you know real growth and they change because of it but it's gonna be interesting good little wrinkle in men's side men's side has not been the most exciting thing um, on the women's side uh how big a deal is that the Serena's in the quarters and how does her how do her prospects look
3: i i mean it's a big deal in the sense but let, let's put it into perspective so she beat uh, maria sakari who had beaten her just the week before in the uh, Western, uh, Cincinnati tournament, the something in Western Open. Um, but she beat number 15 in the world. So um, let's see her beat Naomi Osaka, who's possibly waiting, uh, in the potentially, in the finals. Um, I think Serena has a good chance to make it to the finals. Um, But remember, she's made it to the finals. I think since she was, she, as people remember, she has 23 major titles. Uh, Margaret Court has the record of 24. Serena's either 0-3 or 0-4 in her last four major finals. Um, And so if she were to make it to the finals, I wouldn't put her as the favorite over Naomi Osaka at all. Matter of fact, I would put her as a heavy underdog.
1: Well, Osaka. Speaking of mental mental games that people have been, she's had her challenges, right? But really, back to that Serena final where they, which got so complicated there at the end. Uh, maybe it wasn't a, was it a final? I think that was a final.
3: It was in the final.
1: Um, um, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just as a casual fan of tennis, I would love to see her pull through pull through that. Look on the other kind of sister sport to tennis. Big win by Dustin Johnson. He was the number one seed going into the last leg of the FedEx Cup. Held serve actually. Opened his lead. He went in leading by two. I think he won by led by five for a long time. Right? He won by three or four. He
3: did, but he didn't shoot the best golf. He didn't need to, but he didn't.
1: Right. But somebody, the second place guy, wasn't the guy who shot the best golf. So he had more distance to come. But it was a big win for for Johnson. And so, tell me, Eric, you've been on his case a little bit about majors. Is is a major purely categorical, or can we give him a little extra credit for winning the FedEx?
3: We, we can give him a little extra credit, but I'm going to yank it right away. Remember, he's his last four tournaments, 2-1, two, 2-1. One, two, one. Let's so, see yeah. you prove it. we got the U.S. Open in two weeks. Not even two weeks. A week from Thursday it starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two, three weeks later, we got this thing called the Masters. So <laughs> if he doesn't win either of these two, I'm oh, going to stay by the man. comment that I'm – look.
1: That's too high. No, do you, I think I think the bar needs to be if he's competitive and he doesn't win, because come on, it's tough to say if he doesn't win. Yeah, guys' tournaments are hard to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, DJ, Eric, the thing is not that he doesn't win majors is that he's in the running on on Sunday and
2: doesn't win the majors. I think that's the knot. And to the extent that you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're a momentum guy, right, Eric? Yeah. I mean, like this very special year where all the majors are kind of all stacked together. Does it, would that argue more strongly That's towards right. like, That's you know, right. I mean, to the extent that he has momentum, this could be the the, the year that he kind of breaks through and maybe uh, breaks okay. through a couple of times. If he
3: doesn't win, uh, I'll, I'll live by it. If he's, if he's highly competitive and doesn't close the door, Or Mm -hmm. if he's not competitive at all, despite how well he seems to be playing. I agree with you, Shane. This is his opportunity. Because these streaks in golf, these periods of non-stationarity, forget momentum. I've really got my swing together. I'm Mm -hmm. seeing the putts well, et cetera. Those seem to go in bunches. matter of fact, I remember, you guys remember, if you talk about the same era, I remember in the early 90s when Fred Couples couldn't be beaten. Remember, he would, and he did win the Masters. He just couldn't be beaten, like seven, eight tournaments in a row. Forget Tiger. Tiger always couldn't be beaten. But I'm talking about someone of similar, what yeah. I'll call career, as like a Dustin Johnson. Du- this is Dustin Johnson's chance. He doesn't have to wait three months. In the next six weeks, the, there's two the, majors.
1: The thing about this is one of the beautiful things about sports is if a guy, even a guy you don't like, kind of has enough bad breaks for a long enough period of time, he kind of becomes sympathetic character. And so now I've never liked Dustin Johnson. Now I like Dustin Johnson because he's, he's kind of, you know, the world's skeptical about his ability to get it done in major. So now I'm really pulling for him to continue this momentum. But, guys, what a ridiculous fall of sports we have in front of us. Are you kidding me? Amongst everything else that's going on, the U.S. Open's about to happen. And then right after that, the Masters? And by the way, last weekend was the Kentucky Derby. We didn't even talk about the Kentucky Derby on the show beforehand. We missed it. This
3: is happening, and the French Open's about to start in two weeks too. I mean, in in, uh, tennis. I mean, it's NFL starting this Thursday. unbelievable!
1: It's unbelievable. How are we supposed to cover all that? How are we supposed to follow it all as fans? Well, we should be well rested from not getting to
2: cover it over the last few months, right? We're going. We we should be going in like uh, you know at peak in peak form.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, did I didn't I, I there's there is no finer two minutes in sports than a than a major horse race and the Kentucky Derby is as big as any of them. It sounds like it was a good one. Did y'all yeah. pay attention?
4: I did actually. I I, uh, I prepared by reading the the novel Sea <laughs> All
1: right, Adi. That's and not it, the most analytics preparation I've ever seen you do. No, before. it wasn't. But the,
4: the analytics part of it was just wondering about odds. Usually people like, um, they don't want to bet the favorites. So uh, for, uh, sports bet uh, horse racing is parimutual. So that means that the odds are set by the fraction of the money that's put on the horse. Yes. And And if people don't want to bet the favorite because the payoffs are so generally so low, that can often mean that the favorite is actually a good bet because it's paying out at a, at a better rate than uh than you think it deserves because they're they're the favorite but this was an overwhelming favorite they were three five i mean yeah. and they were at the at the at the um by the time the race started and everything i know about horse racing which isn't that much but is enough to know that there's a lot of screwy stuff that happens in a horse race these are big yeah. animals you get injuries you get they get positioning there's all kinds of stuff about trying to get through interference the interference there's disqualifications the one bet we made last year right we lost Uh, that one because of the disqualification still
2: salty about that
4: that's right that cost (laughs) us a little bit you know so i'm looking at a three five i'm going this is insane it's almost like you can't expect a horse to win a single race with that much dominance considering so many things can go wrong and and here with all the up you know the the craziness this is probably a much later i mean kentucky derby is for three-year-olds right so that is are correct. they older than they and they, than they typically are at this time because this happened six months later? I don't know what that means.
1: Seems like a lot of uncertainty. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball, and the first half is over, but come back and join us for the second half after the break.
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
0: On Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to wharton moneyball a virtual edition but a two-hour edition we're expanding back to our original length because there's so many sports to cover in fact guys if we were really doing it in proportion to sports we'd be doubling our length i mean the fall this fall as we just talked about in the last segment is about to get completely out of control when it comes to sports i mean completely legitimately never to be seen again most ridiculous season of sports of our lifetime so we've we're in the NBA playoffs, we're in the NHL playoffs, we are cruising up to the baseball playoffs, we're about to kick off football, thank God, we've got all these majors going on in golf and tennis and horse racing, it's really incredible. Before we get to football, let's talk about the NBA, some interesting things went down to the wire over the last week, the NBA has been, I think it's fair to say, more exciting than we might have said ahead of time, um, for a variety of reasons. So, where are we? What do you think is going to happen? How are you feeling about we're down to the semis? Um, the Heat just almost shut out the, the uh, Bucks the other day, which would have been a sweep. It would have been amazing for what would have been the favorite team coming into the season or coming into the playoffs. So, where are you on the NBA right now?
3: Well, let's start with the Eastern Conference, which you already did. So, um, the Heat are better than I thought. Um, the Bucs are yeah. Yeah, yes. much better than I thought. Yes. Um, and despite, you know, it's one of those teams where, you know, Jimmy Butler's their best player. But, I mean, Jimmy Butler's not one of the top – I don't know. I don't think he's one of the top ten players in the NBA. He's in that next tier after that. Yeah, right, right. They've just got – it's their strategy, their defense. Just they spread the ball around. They've got a bunch of shooters. They've got a bunch of guys that can really handle the ball. They're tough defensively. Um, I, they definitely have a chance to go to the finals. There's no doubt about it. But I wouldn't put them as a favorite right now. I think the Celtics are, you know, I would put the Celtics, it's the betting lines too. I would put the Celtics mm. as a favorite right now. I think the Celtics are up three to two on the uh, Raptors. Yeah. I would put the Celtics as the favorite to win that series. Obviously they're up three, two, and I would put them as a slight favorite, if not a moderate favorite over the Heat. So I think the Celtics are looking good
1: Okay, um, in so, the East. And- Uh, Just a quick note that our our boy Shane Battier still does analytics for the Heat. So that's a nice analytics connection to that franchise and another reason to pull for him. Also their coach, I I just like seeing their coach succeed, you know, because he, he didn't get much credit when he had, you know, the, the LeBron and his whole crew down there. And he's still in the seat. And, and as you say, it seems like a very well run team. And so it's, it's, I kind of find myself surprisingly open to the heat. The Celtics, my God, they, they were going to go up 3-0 on the Raptors with half a second left in the game. Unbelievable ending in, in game three, I guess that was. And then they kind of came out with a hangover in game four, but they went out and got it, apparently really due to defensive effort in game five. So big big props to Brad Stevens and those guys, another team that's easy to pull for. It'd, it'd be very fun to have a, a Celtics heat um, Eastern. Yeah, exactly. not
3: Except for fans that like lots of scoring. How about that? Because I think you could see a lot of games 95-90 in that series.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Can I ask Eric a question? Just because I've been following hockey a little bit more closely. Um, what What's the probability you give to the Eastern team from the East beating the team from the West in the finals? And you get to integrate Great. over all the choices for both the East and West when you make that probability.
3: Yeah, so good question. Well, there's only two po- – well, there's, there's a lot of possibilities in the East still, but let's assume it's either going to be the Celtics or the Heat. Um, I give the Heat very little chance, maybe 20% or less, only because they're just not as talented. I, I mean, I, I understand their scheme. There's, I, I think I'm agreeing with uh, Kate. I think Eric Spoelstra, the coach of the Heat, is fantastic. Um, they're just not better. They're not better than the Clippers. Mm-hmm. They're not more talented than the Clippers or the Lakers or the Rockets. They're just not. So I give the Heat low probability of winning if they make it to the finals. The Celtics, on the other hand, they've got all kinds of talent. And they got a great coach, in my view. Um, I think the Celtics would be an underdog, for sure, against the Lakers or the Clippers or the Rockets. But maybe 55-45, 60-40 against. not Not massive underdog to win. Um, and let me also say, if we go to the West, remember I just said the Bucs aren't as good as I thought. Well, I'll give you another team that's not as good as I thought, the Clippers, or Denver's better than I thought. Yeah, Because right. Denver easily could have won last night's game. They didn't. I watched the entire game. Um, and Denver down two to one. But Clippers aren't rolling over Denver. And I don't think most people think Denver's one of the great teams of all times. <laughs> and... Um, You know, Jamal Murray had an awful game last night, and uh, Denver still could have won the game. So I think the Clippers are another team that's worse than I thought. I think the Rockets are a little bit better than I thought. I think the Lakers and the Clippers are not quite as good as I thought.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Well, the markets don't quite agree with you. They have the Clippers as the easy favorite to win everything at plus 160, followed by the Lakers at plus 300, your Celtics at plus 550, the Heat – at plus 600, so that looks like a pretty even uh, Eastern Finals if it breaks the way we think it is. Rockets coming in at plus 1,600, by the way, to, at just, plus 2,000.
3: Just to be clear, um, it's not inconsistent, just to be clear what I said. I said they're not as good as I thought, but I didn't say they That's weren't right. better than the Celtics or the Heat. That's right. But That's also, right. If, if you go by these implied odds, actually it has the Clippers – and let's say the Clippers played the Celtics, and it's plus 160, plus 550. You have to be a little careful there because the Celtics are up 3-2 and the Clippers are up uh, only 2-1. So it's not clear. But if we just took the proportionate odds, yeah, yeah. it would say that the Clippers are like three and a half times favored over the Celtics. I think if you gave most people the Celtics yeah. at 4-1 to one odds, most people would take the Celtics over the Clippers at 4-1 to yeah. one
1: odds. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. That sounds right. Anything else out of the West? I mean, that that Rockets-Thunder series was such a good series. Anything else about the Lakers-Rockets series?
3: Well, you know, Rajon Rondo was pretty much – it was his first game back in like six months. He was terrible in game one of the series. Um, but in game two, he was the most important player on the court. Wow. I mean, I'm not saying LeBron – I mean, LeBron's still LeBron. LeBron had almost a triple-double. Anthony Davis had 34-10. and 10. But – Rondo was plus 28 when he was on the court. He was, a, it was tremendous the way he played defensively. He, he pushed the team. He was the leader of the second unit when LeBron wasn't as much on the court. I think um, for the Lakers to win the series and for the Lakers to win the West, Rondo's going to have to play extraordinarily
1: well. That'd be a fun, fun series to dial into um, some star power, obviously, but um, I'm, I'm, I hope the Rockets can keep it competitive at the very least. Um, fellas, last few minutes of the show we have a new sport about to roll out very oddly we have you know this last week was kind of a a soft opening for college football this week is an abrupt opening for the nfl i mean there's been no preseason. most of us haven't allowed ourselves to believe this was actually going to happen but apparently there is going to be 16 nfl games over the next week and that's that's pretty good fun so um what have you been paying attention to? How are things shaping up? I mean, what storylines even have your attention? I mean, I know, Eric, I probably have the same storyline as you, uncharacteristically. I think the, the Brady and Tampa Bay thing is about as interesting as we've had to pay attention to it.
3: Well, oh, it's not just Brady. It's
1: Gronk. Oh, and Gronk, of yeah. course. Now
3: it's Leonard Fournette. Yeah. I mean, they're stacking up people left and right over there. That's also oh, Okay. They also signed LaShawn – they Shady McCoy. They signed LaShawn McCoy in the offseason. I mean, and remember, this was a team last year that had – I mean, you can argue about Jameis's 30 interceptions, but he threw for 5,000 yards and threw for yeah. 33 touchdowns, and, and he's, they still have Mike Evans. They still have Cameron Brate. You know, they still have all the guys they had, and they've added Gronk and Fournette and Brady. I mean <laughs> – you're That's a so
1: story so in the NFL. Come on. Okay. I think, but look, I think Shane has reason to be excited as well. It's not often that the team on the receiving end, the team on the giving end of the trade has as interesting a story as the team on the receiving end, but the Patriots with Cam Newton, are you
2: Yeah, me? no, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by, I mean, I think Brady's going to be such an interesting thing to watch this season anyway, because yeah, I mean, you know, at least on paper, I mean, they were already pretty close to the playoffs, even with Jameis Winston throwing 15 interceptions or whatever he threw. Um, and to add Brady into that, I mean, I think that puts them, you know, right into playoff contention.
3: But given the strength, let me ask you a question, Shane, right now. Given the strength of their respective divisions, clearly NFC South as a whole is stronger than the AFC East as a whole.
2: Well, I mean, I see them, you know, both, in both cases, I see them, I mean, the I, I think the, both divisions have two good teams and two bad teams, right? I mean, you're not going to see anything out of Carolina this year. They're like a bottom five team, I think, fairly that's predictably. True. That's Atlanta true. Atlanta is not going to really contend. But
3: here was my question. Which team now do you think is going to have more wins for the season?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, that's I'm go-
3: I'm, I'm going to actually take Tampa Bay on this.
2: Because uh, the Patriots, in addition to having Cam Newton, have to figure out that offense in very short order um, – it, it, you know, they just have a very tough strength of schedule uh, the, the this year. So I, I, I think the Patriots will have end up with less wins at Tampa Bay.
3: I don't know why. I just think that, you know, I just remember the year that, um, was it Matt Castle led with the, the Brady yeah. three-year where they went 11-5, and five and, I, you know.
2: I, I, people have been bringing that up a lot. I just want to kind of point out that that team was <laughs> – that, that was a year removed from them being – you know, almost undefeated the entire season. So I think that 2018 uh, minus Brady was is much better than this particular 2020 Fair team, even with wanna, Cam Newton on it. But I want to point
1: out that in, according to ESPN's FPI, their Football Power Index, we've been talking about the numbers eight and nine teams in the league. So these mm-hmm. great storylines. Also, these teams are really pretty stacked yep. evenly according to the Quants at ESPN.
2: Or if you go by the CBS power rankings I just pulled up this morning, the Patriots, I think, are the 20th best team in the league.
1: Okay. According well, to that. i have never heard of the CBS power rankings. I, I, my, I mean, look
2: at, it, look at it if you'd like to laugh. If you'd like to see Green Bay at number two and the Patriots at number 20.
1: Okay, good Lord. All right. Yeah. So, speaking of numbers two, it's something when we've been talking for five minutes about the NFL and we haven't talked about Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. So those two teams, uh, they've been the story the last couple of years, and it's great that we've got them still going. There's no reason to really doubt them other than regression to the mean. I mean, yeah. that, 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 those both AFC. On the NFC side, two teams that are still looking strong, Niners and Saints quietly having the solid off seasons. No reason not to expect those guys. Some people think the Cowboys are coming. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things bouncing around the NFL. What else has your attention?
3: Well, I just want to say one thing about your comment about Pat Mahomes. Um. what happens if Pat Mahomes mean is increasing and the mean he's regressing to is a better one than he had last season. That's, Back you know, scary. That's what I'm saying. He could be getting better. So he might, he might regress, but towards a mean that's higher than the mean he had. So let's take- let's
1: talk about that. Let's talk about that for a little bit because, you know, that goes so against our statistical intuition, but you, we don't usually think about that non-stationary that, that non-stationary mean. This guy has been in the league for three years. He's been a starter for two. And we should know something about quarterback trajectories. We should know something about over what period of time they continue to grow and get better. I don't know exactly what that curve looks like, but I am certain that it is still increasing after three years, especially two Mm -hmm. years as a starter. And so you make a very nice point that – This guy's not a well-established, plateaued kind of player. He's still figuring this thing out. And there's stands to reason that he might still, might still should still be improving his game.
3: Yeah. Just for our fans out there, you know, the classic equation, the simplest equation we like to use is observed performance equals true performance plus error. So regression to the mean says you got a positive error last season, maybe next season you won't get a positive error. The problem is there's the true part, the the true mean part. If that part goes up more than the regression to the mean effect happens, he may even have a better season. And that's what we're talking about here. It's very possible, as uh, Cade was saying, you know, his career, his trajectory for quarterbacks, Third-year starting quarterbacks are better than second-year starting quarterbacks, and my guess is maybe by a margin that could be larger than his regression to the mean effect for this
1: year. All right. Yeah. Well, that, that That is interesting. I, I want to I short that last comment. I'm going to say, yes, I agree it'll improve, but but by less than the margin of the regression to the mean. But I would say the same about Lamar Jackson. So he's he's had a year and a half as a starter. He's entering his third year as a, as a QB. And, but he's got a big regression of the mean effect coming as well. Probably. But what do you expect? Give me that. Give me that. What do you expect of the Ravens and Lamar? Because most people still are fighting this bias that, oh, the league's going to figure them out. You just can't have that system without the league eventually figuring them out. Do you buy that or do you think that they still have a chance to be at the top of the league?
2: Oh, I predict them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I have a hard time convincing myself that it's going to be any team besides the Ravens and chiefs that are kind of there in the AFC at the end of the season, just because I do think, I mean, I think things, things, you know, certain aspects of the scheme that the Ravens had success with last year, you know, teams will catch up to that teams have had a whole off season to study that. But I mean, I, I tra- John Harbaugh is a great coach. I think that, that, you know, they can keep, they can keep up in the, in this, in this, you know, arms race of scheme, they can keep up. And I think Lamar Jackson is a talented enough quarterback and probably still is improving at least on the throwing aspect of things that they're, they probably they're going to come into the season with, you know, even more kind of scheming sort of potential uh, than they did last season.
3: Yeah. I'm with Shane. I have no reason to believe that the, a throwing side of Lamar Jackson. I mean, he, he was a much better passer last year than any mm-hmm. of us forecast, yeah. and I have no reason to believe that he won't be equally um, – he won't have a, another set of improvements. I, I'm very bullish on the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. Do you guys so think that-
2: there's – could, could you guys come up with any team besides the Chiefs or Ravens from the AFC that you think could break through? I, I'm having a hard time myself.
3: You know, the only thing that I saw last year that makes me hesitant – is the Titans. Mm. I mean, damn, they were hot. Yeah. They got close. They were leading the Chiefs. Weren't they leading them like 21 to oh, nothing? Yeah, that that's was, right.
2: Yep, so, that's mean, right.
3: I mean, uh, and also we have...
2: Would, the, the, the Tannehill is the one guy I would expect a little actual regression to the floor. <laughs> for of, all, of all, all the quarterbacks we've discussed so but far. also,
3: let's just make sure we integrate in. We also, just like we talked about the first hour plus the show, let's make sure we integrate in uncertainty, random injuries all those other kinds mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. Right. So I, I think right. we both agree. You, well, let me ask you a question very simply. would you, t- If I gave you the Chiefs and Ravens to make the Super Bowl in the AFC and you give me the rest of the conference, would you take that at an even money bet? Would you take the, yes. Chiefs, you would take I the Chiefs? I, would. Ravens I think I would. Else? I think I would.
2: I think I would, but I I'd hate pro- probably I hate be silly hate. to do so. But well, yes, I no, I think, I think I would. I think I would. I think I still think Chiefs-Ravens is above 50% of the probability even We're with the on, with even with those injury probabilities
1: in there yeah we are big on field yeah. bets on on the show but that's I, one that feels like i, I yeah. want i want the two teams um, so there's there's there, you're raising a good a good point the uncertainty yeah. we, tend to underestimate it. I was
3: also just going to quickly remember the change in the playoff format for this year too, is that doesn't uh, more teams make the playoffs, but the one seed gets an even bigger boost by getting some sort of buy or something like that.
2: Only the one seed has a buy now. And your injury comment did make me think of another AFC team. I'll just kind of throw in there um, that could challenge is the Steelers. If big Ben comes back, I mean, because they almost made the playoffs last year. With, with no an play. absolutely unwatchable offense, right? <laughs> and so if if Big Ben comes back, they're probably going to have like a top five yeah. defense again this year. They are, they are they are a team that could challenge.
1: I like I like the story there, um, the, uh, because you could probably ne- you could probably do well by never, um, never all the way eliminating the Steelers. Yeah. But and, and what you're saying, Shane, is nice. It's like what could happen. What one thing that might not be likely, but it's not impossible, and if it did happen, you'd have a real contender. And I think that's a good one. If Ben, if if, Mm -hmm. now he's getting old, so it's unlikely, but he is there as he has been—not last year, but the year before. That's an interesting team. By the way, if you go down the ESPN's FBI after the Chiefs and Ravens, who are one and two, the next AFC team is the Pats at nine, and then Bills at ten, and the Steelers at twelve. And so you're dropping down into that range if you're looking for the next contender. I think the Pats, if Cam Newton, you know, finally gets it, if he gets back to his kind of mm-hmm. peak performance with Belichick and they figure out how to do that, I think that is another one, especially, you know, if something happens, you know, untoward with the Chiefs or Ravens, I like the Pats as there's yeah. a, there's a version of the Pats that could do that. There's a version of the Steelers that could do that yeah. That's one last note on scheme, um, Brian Burke, our buddy over at ESPN, who's playing with next generation stats so much these days, published a new article today, we're recording on Tuesday, where they have, they have um, basically successful blocks made and, and successful blocks overcome. So they have an offensive stat and defensive stat. It's taken them a couple of years to do this thing. So they're automatically grading now everybody on the field for their percentage successful blocks and percentage blocks overcome. And they laid, he lays all this out, and it's fantastic, and, you know, Brian's fantastic, and that whole work is fantastic. And, it's, of course, it's just first generation, but it is quite strong already. But one of the things that jumps out to you when you look at their individual stats, two of the top five or six offensive tackles in the league at successful blocking are the two tackles for last year's Ravens. And when you see that happen, you, got, you wonder, you just read, reading down through, you're like, okay, maybe, but how much of it is scheme Especially because you know that they run such a different offense. And then Burt goes on to unpack that, and and he addresses exactly that issue. But but it does – that's one of the great things about the Ravens scheme. They put their offensive linemen in positions, in advantageous positions. And so one of the reasons that running game works so well is scheme. And it's neat to see Brian's work showing that in a subjective way.
3: Just quickly, that's why I'm not uh, – I'm positive on the Bucks, obviously, but I'm hesitant because their offensive line last year stunk. Yeah. It stunk. So, you know, one hit to 43-year-old Tom Brady, and we're going to be uh, Ryan Griffin or Bladen Gabbard as our quarterback. And then we're all of a sudden the 0-16
1: True. This is true. All right. Well, it all begins Thursday night, I'm assuming, and then in, 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 in full-throated measure on Sunday. We've also got college football in the fourth quarter right after this break. We're going to do an interview with Bill Conley, our old friend, talk about college football, do a full 30 minutes on college football because there isn't anything more exciting than the fact that that hits full swing this weekend as well. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a fourth quarter to go. Come back. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
0: on business radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We're going into an interview segment in this quarter one of our first interviews since the pandemic hit back in March and the first one in a number of months. I want to welcome Bill Conley. Bill, a longtime football analyst and writer currently with ESPN.com, arguably the lead college football analyst in the world, which is a delight. Always a delight to read. Always a delight for us to talk to him. Bill, good afternoon to you and welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. It is weird. I'm not talking to you at 830 in the morning or anything.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, right. This is almost midnight for you. You're given your early morning disposition, <laughs> but yes, it is. It is a change. We're not doing the live show um, from the studio at 8, 830, eight, something like that. Instead, we're recording. Um, but we wanted to check in with you. We're 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 getting back to a two hour show, so we have a little slot for an interview. And when we thought about what we want to talk about, we figured football, given the week, and. Given our some, some of our biases for college football, we figured college football. And if that's the case, we got to talk to Bill
0: Conner. I appreciate so. it. It's been fun. This is a number of years in a row now.
1: Absolutely. Um, Bill's one of our a regular guests and, and a, a friend of the show. We're thankful to have him. Um, we The last few years have done college football preview shows where we, where we dedicated an entire two hours to talking college football, which has been great fun. Um, and we're not, we don't get that. So we're kind of getting. I'm getting like a 25 minute interview with Bill Conley as the entire college football preview show. So no pressure, Bill. <laughs> no pressure. But that's what's, that's what's riding on this on this old talk. First, how are you? How's Columbia? You know, college towns are kind of the new nightmare hotspots around the yeah. country. You're living smack dab in the middle of one. How's it? How's it looking around there? Well, we had this bubble
0: set up within our own, you know, household within our own family since you know mid March, and it got punctured big time today, having to send the kid back to school. So we'll see, right. we'll see how we're doing in a few weeks, I guess. But no, it's, I mean, we we have a decent spot. Columbia has, until the last month, been a pretty good place to be in regard to all this, and we'll just have to see. Uh,
1: <laughs> we'll
0: have to see what happens. the The test rates have been awfully high these last uh, few weeks here.
1: Right, right, and now people are talking about Labor Day and, you know, did, did that yeah. throw things off, and we'll, so we'll know in a couple of weeks. This, the college football programs, a, a lot of them seem to be keeping things on the rails. You know, they're not sharing a lot of information, so we don't know how wobbly it is, but um, theoretically, we have football coming up, which is exciting, and, of course, this is what we want to talk about, but since we worked on Columbia, I'm curious um, how you're feeling about that home schedule. I mean, you're a long time Mizzou zoo season ticket holder, you get some benefits of being in the SEC. I've always wondered what it feels like, though, as a, sec, as a, as a fan of a non-perennial contender. Mm-hmm. It feels like a mixed blessing to have these guys come into town because you get to watch Alabama play live, but now you have to, you have to watch Alabama play live. <laughs> right, it's well,
0: it's mixed because, I mean, yeah, they get to come, they come to town, which is just, it is cool to, to have those teams come to your town and the, you know, the fans and sitting in your stadium and all that, except their fans won't be sitting in Missouri stadium this year. So it's been, it's, it's less of a mixed blessing because there's not a lot of blessing to it. They, you know, they have to play Alabama and you don't get just a ton of the, the rewards of having that at home. You get to go to LSU, but you don't get to really tailgate. You can't yeah, you know, right. go down there as a group and, and uh, mingle or anything like that. So it has been a little weird. Like eventually, I think in 2023, LSU actually comes to Columbia for the first time oh, in wow. what will be Missouri's 12th season in the SEC. So this is, wow. this is just one big screaming billboard for pods, uh, one of my yes. pet topics, and, and yes. maybe one day we'll get there.
1: Well, we, we, we would support that, Bill Connery, long advocate of the pod system, which says you have, like, 14 groupings that have yep. a regular schedule, and then everyone else kind of passes through. Neat, neat concept. You guys did get the short end of the SEC scheduling <laughs> I mean, you, got, you host Alabama and Georgia, and then you go to LSU and Florida, I think. I mean, these yep. are four of the top consensus, top six or seven programs in the country. Um, but, uh, l- listen, that takes us to – college football and I, I, what I'd like to do is uh, the stick the stick for this interview bill will be that I'll be the academic hypothesizer and you be the real world expert with data that weighs in on these hypotheses okay yes. just as a way to kind of walk through let's see let let me speculate and you inform me uh, about those speculations so the first is is just about these postponements you know we've already seen a number of games that were going to be played this weekend postponed um by the way you know before this whole thing out you just mentioned tailgating and and baton rouge texas was going to lsu this weekend this was the weekend we've been looking forward to it for years but okay we're gonna let that go but even in the rescheduled world four games were postponed so for example smu tcu longtime southwest conference rival rivalry was postponed. And the thing about that is, they don't know when they're going to play it again. They don't have a weekend yet. So they're kind of like, well, if something opens up on the schedule. So, my, my hypothesis here's the hypothesis the challenges arising from postponements and rescheduling this season will make the 2016 LSU Florida <laughs> hurricane, hurricane kerfuffle look quaint. So, I know you remember that whole disaster. These guys got in a major. Um, piss a match about rescheduling that thing and and it feels like we just have a whole bunch of those in front of us so is that the way it's going to be for the next three months
0: yeah I mean we've already gotten hints that just like when a natural disaster turned into a how big a man are you contest which is kind of what happened then uh, well we would have played well we wouldn't know. we we're, we're definitely would have you know all that um, it's I don't see how we avoid kind of getting to the end of the season if we can get to the end of the season with some sort of situation where some teams have played seven conference games. Some teams have played nine, you know, kind of like what we're seeing in major league baseball it would be kind of miraculous to not end up in that situation. Um, because uh, like you said, we're already, we just got started and we're already seeing now that the bigger schools with the bigger positive case rates are uh, getting involved to, uh, TCU SMU and Oklahoma state Tulsa and all these are getting moved. And these are the non-conference games. We're already using our cushion. Like they tried to build in a couple of bye weeks here and there, uh, with the hope that maybe that helps with rescheduling. We're already using some of that cushion with non-conference and it's a one game non-conference season. So theoretically, maybe, maybe case numbers get better. Maybe, you know, after this little Labor Day spike, whatever happens here, maybe they start to go down and everything gets more manageable, but, um, yeah. We, the whole idea was to build flexibility into what they were scheduling and we're about to use it up. So after that, you just get cancellations and then you get some really weird arguments at the end of the year about who should be in the conference title game.
1: Right, right, right. I mean, as if we don't argue about that stuff enough, right? This is a whole new variable. Right. Um, you, based on what you're hearing from programs around the country, what are the chances that um, it's not just case rates get, getting better over the next few weeks, but what are the chances that teams started building almost a herd immunity because of just how many people within the team as much, despite their precautions, they are getting, you know, Tennessee just suspended a scrimmage because they had 44 players out. That's that's like a third of the guys were shooting up probably.
0: Yeah. And and that was in a way a good thing because I think he said it came from like nine positive tests. So as long as, I mean, I guess the, all those people could end up testing positives, but it was that they were taking extreme precautions to make okay. sure that there was contact tracing and all that, that people were sitting out. So if that doesn't blow up, it was, it was kind of good practice that they did that. I'm very glad they did that. But I mean, what's funny is, you know, well, not funny that none of this is funny, but um, you know, when everybody returned to campus in June, you know we saw like suddenly Clemson had 28 positives and all these other schools everybody kind of uh, exploded there at the start but from like once you kind of go a couple weeks into that process schools kind of started figuring out the bubble thing and um, I I was kind of laughing a couple weeks ago because I was you know there's so much we always have to kind of we contradict ourselves a lot talking about college football in general but then when you start to think things like, "Wow, these schools exploding," you know Notre Dame and NC State and North Carolina shutting things down like that—that's going to help the football team because it's you know no, go down not. these horrible roads. But I do think <laughs> that as schools have started to come to grips with the idea of online classes um, it, and and kind of accepting that it's okay if the stu- if the football team is kind of separated from the student body, which seems like right. it's happened in a few places now. That helps the bubbles. They've kind of figured out how to make those bubbles um, and and, and protect their guys after those first couple of weeks. And if they can stay apart from the rest of the student population, they can continue to do it. It's just, you know, then you have to acknowledge that they're not normal students and they they don't have the normal student experience. And then you maybe have to, you know, let them make money for you know signing (laughs) autographs at the mall. And that's a completely different story.
1: There, there might be some downstream consequences to having our eyes opened about these things, forcing ourselves to, to look at it clearly. All right. So uh, you're, you're, you're with me on the first hypothesis that this yeah. is going to be, uh, this is going to be a, a, an entire a side, side um, uh, storyline developing over the next few months. All right. Second hypothesis, you know, we've got, it's weird, Bill, because we're kind of starting college football season this weekend and we're starting NFL Football this weekend. There have been no preseason games. It's really going to come out of the blue in a really odd way. One of the things that's going to happen is that Joe Burrow is going to start his first game with the Bengals. God bless him. Um, so here's a hypothesis. You know, riding the momentum of the storylines from last year, some QB is gonna rise, Joe Burrow-like, and jump Trevor Lawrence in the 2021 NFL draft. Trevor Lawrence has been begged as a number one pick since he came out of high school, by the way. So It seems unlikely, but Joe Burrow was the most unlikely thing we've seen in QB in a long time. So what do you think about that hypothesis? And if so, who who could it be?
0: Well, my, my first choice would have been Justin Fields, but he's not playing, or at least not playing right now. The Big Ten's still trying to figure all that out. My right. second pick would have been Trey Lance getting the um the North Dakota State bump where yeah. he plays well the one time on there on television, and then you know your imagination kind of carries you to him being yeah. superhuman the way it did with Carson with Wentz a couple years ago. Um, so, you know, I guess North Dakota State has, is arranging – I think it was with Central Arkansas they arranged what amounts to a Trey Lance showcase game. Right. This fall. Um, right. Which, you know, begs the obvious question, if you can play one game, then why are you – you know, it's, if it's safe to play one game, why, are you, you know, yeah. why aren't you playing more? Or why, why are you playing at all? But those two are, are going to be really interesting prospects. After that, I mean, I, obviously part of the Joe Burrow thing is that we didn't see it coming, so we can't see this coming either. But I can't right. – I can't imagine with, because of the hype involved with Trevor Lawrence from yep. the start um, because of the golden boy treatment he's always gotten and then has lived up to, he's lost once in two years. Um, and it was to Joe Burrow. I, I can't imagine there's a scenario where one of where somebody other than those two guys ends up jumping him and probably
1: nobody will. Okay. All right. So here's an argument goes the other way. What if Trevor Lawrence doesn't quite have the season that's expected. He yep. kind of slips a little bit. Um, and then the, and and then and then um, the North Dakota State fella like blows it out in his one yep. game, and then those NFL scouts have to just kind of you know speculate and dream for the next nine months of, about what he could be.
0: You you do figure in, in this scenario, Justin Fields kind of gets uh, gets the benefit of the doubt too. For if Sure. He doesn't end up sure. like if the Big Ten plays, but it's in January. He decides he can't do that. He opts out. Um, if Trevor Lawrence doesn't live up to expectations this year, and I mean. You know, his receiving core isn't going to be quite as good or whatever. He's, he's going to be fine. But obviously, if he comes out and throws, you know, 22 interceptions or something, then I figure that benefits Justin Fields. And if he's not playing to, you know, tamp down any of that, that almost serves to, to benefit him in a weird way.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, those expectations are so high, they will be hard to live up to. Yep. And, you know, if, and if NFL scouts are great at their jobs, but they're especially great at conjuring the next great <laughs> out of you know you know just bits ashes and, and things so yeah. i mean carson Wentz. There, everyone was speculated about carson Wentz, but that did not keep him from going all the way up the draft board right they had, there was right. a national season on him but i i think we i think we 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 consistently underestimate the the ability for the world to hype the next nfl quarterback and oh, that i mean when Kyler murray came out we were would he be a first round draft pick we were speculating in january and then he was yeah. the number one draft pick in April. I mean, this is this is a now, this is the consistent story.
0: I, I do wish. I, I think it would benefit everybody involved if the combine was a week after the season and the draft was the week after that. Yeah. Now, now we almost get that this year. Yes, because, right. That's true. You know, the it's theoretical that like the Big Ten won't end until March or whatever. But um, but no, it is like the amount of overthinking, especially with the quarterback position, is pretty great. And I mean, look at Trevor Lawrence last year. The story ended up being for him that he was just bad the first month of the year. He just stunk. Like his, he had a one, let's see, a 137 passer rating against a and 157 against Syracuse, 239 against Charlotte. This was oh during his bad yeah. period. Uh, <laughs> 156 against Florida State. And he threw two interceptions against Louisville, which was terrible. But he also threw three touchdowns and had a 157 pl- uh, passer rating. He was fine. And then he got better. But it, the story, like that, that was not living up to expectations because of basically like four bad quarters in six games. Right. So the bar is very high.
1: Well, we're, we're pulling for him, but it's always interesting to see. Um, th- it's not really a complete college football season with only one or two QBs in the NFL uh, race. So there'll yeah. be more. There'll be more yeah. appearances. Um, all right. Third hypothesis. So Bill's Bill short my second hypothesis. A third <laughs> hypothesis. The G5s have never had, a, had more favorable conditions for making the playoffs. So yes. that's just a simple hypothesis. And if, if you buy that, then who are the programs who are most likely to pull it off? What's the chances they actually do? And, and do you think they will?
0: I hope um, next week I get to write the army BYU national title implications piece that I was born to write uh, before those two teams play here. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, just simple, like numbers tell you, it's about be- the best chance they're going to get instead of right. having to somehow surpass two, P five champions to get into the top four, they don't have to surpass anybody. They just have to surpass like the runners up, Uh, and you know uh, teams with probably you know either two or three losses coming from the SEC or whatever. So this is a perfect opportunity for them. Um, And I wish, I wish this was. uh, It's I'm not optimistic that we're going to get to the end with the right team being undefeated for this because UCF, I think they're projected twentieth now in my uh, SP plus rankings. They just had like ten guys opt out. Oh, oh, is not, that right? UCF 10. Yeah, 10? yeah and, and that was Josh Heupel admitting it. You figure some other teams have had the same thing and they're just not telling anybody because they don't have to. But um but Heupel mentioned that they did. A couple of those guys were pretty were likely to be key. I think defensive line contributors. Okay. Like the third string quarterback was one of them. Some of them don't matter, but um, but it could hurt a little bit, and they're only a little bit ahead of Memphis, they're only a little bit ahead of Cincinnati. Like the winner of the A A C is going to be a really good team.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't
0: know if any of them can get to the finish line unbeaten. And if it's not the AAC, then it's like App State. Does App State have the the cachet to get past like an 8-3 and three Georgia? Um, right. And then, like I said, you get to Army and BYU. BYU is playing the easiest – both of them are playing the easiest schedules in the history of the FBS this year because they had to just – you know, who's available to play? Abilene, Christian, come on down. Like right. North, I, North I, Alabama, you're invited and all that. And BYU is only playing eight games right now. They're trying to get more. So I, they could absolutely, either one of those could absolutely roll to an unbeaten record and like both of them have some sort of cachet, But I don't know. Like I, it would be so amazing if army got into the college football playoff this year, but I don't know if the committee could would do it over like a two loss Notre Dame or a three loss, you know, Georgia, Florida, whatever that situation ends up being.
1: Right. So you know, mostly I agree that the hypothesis isn't interesting because it has to be that way, given that two power five conferences are gone. But on the other hand, there aren't these big interconference games that allow the teams like UCF or Houston to make their case on the national states. There just aren't as many of those or almost none of those. And so you don't have as much evidence going yeah. that direction. The other thing is you tend to have to be floating around in the national conversation at least a year before you're given the benefit of the right. doubt, in your G5 program. So, you know, that I used to have in Boise State all the time. Right. People started talking about them. So, all of a sudden, they started seeming more legitimate. Same with UCF in recent years. So, UCF kind of has that privilege at this yeah. point. But if, if it's not them, does Memphis really have it? Maybe they had a good year last year. Does Cincy have it? I, I'm skeptical. App State, everyone still remembers the Michigan game. Yeah. But do they get credit for that? I don't know. I don't know that yeah. somebody has that in their favor enough.
0: Yeah, you do figure UCF has by far the most of it. Maybe maybe a BYU or or an Army for just having almost beaten Michigan and Oklahoma in the last couple of years and for being Army. But um right. You do figure UCF is the biggest name of that bunch at this point and it would be very very interesting if they can get to the finish line unbeaten this year. I think that would be uh this uh, you know <laughs> I, I root for it to happen. I'm basically going to be rooting. My favorite team in in college football this fall is going to be whatever unbeaten AAC teams are left, right? Um, because I just right. want to see the scenario play out and see what
1: happens. Right. And you know, Bruce Feldman made a point on his show with Stu Mandel the other day that you kind of want to you want to reward programs who make it through this year and all the craziness. Yeah. If you're able to navigate the pandemic and have an undefeated season, even as a G5, isn't that worth like an extra? Yeah. And you can yeah. imagine that those kinds of quasi-political decisions or rationales will play because it is such a weird year
0: yeah and and I mean the committee does I mean the committee obviously doesn't take G5s very seriously but they do take losses pretty seriously as a rule I mean only one two lost team has really really had a good shot and that was that Auburn team that ended up losing a third time to what was that 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 was the Georgia year right they lost to Georgia in the in the SEC title game like eight when they had two losses they came sort of close but um it still matters so if you've got a bunch of two and three loss non-conference champions versus an unbeaten team that has actually looked the part a little bit like i mean if bYU looks like they did
1: the rest i mean they they covered by about 40 last night that's that's not to be easy that
0: i mean even if it's abilene christian or north uh north alabama if they're winning 66 to nothing and looking the part then that'll help
1: yeah that's right um, all right, well, speaking of two losses, let's go to hypothesis number four, which is that despite the SEC's gamesmanship in stacking the schedule for Alabama and Georgia, something Bill's very familiar with, the 10-game conference schedule they put together will prove too much, and the SEC does not get two programs in the playoff. What do you think?
0: I, I, I think that premise is correct. I'm just not sure who else does instead. Like, if it's not going to be a, a, a G5 that means a second Big Twelve or uh, ACC team would have to get in instead. And that point, you're talking about a two or three loss Notre Dame, a two or three loss uh, North Carolina, um, a three, uh, two, well, a two or three loss Texas, perhaps, um, or or Oklahoma, whichever one loses that that game mm-hmm. or those those games. The two times they maybe play each other, but um, it, you know, it, it, I don't know if it's if the, the if it's any easier in other conferences, at least. You know, I don't think it's a, just a ton harder in other conferences than it is in the SEC. And that's probably going to help the SEC because, yeah, we're going to get to the end here. And, and it's easy to look at having like 3-0, 1-loss teams, but that, that, there might not be an obvious fourth. So you might have to be choosing between um, a team with multiple losses from one of these conferences. And at that point, you figure the SEC goes right back to the front of the line. So well, that, I think they still have a chance, but you're right in, in premise.
1: Well, they've got a few more losses to put give around because they're they're such wimps about their schedule most years, where they play you know four non-conference and two or three of those are pretty light. So they've got some more additional some some more losses to pass around. Yep. It really depends on how they get distributed. So if you're you're right, if if they if they come through without a lot of two-loss teams, then fine. But I'm, I'm I'm and and yeah, this goes to the, you. We may we may scoff at the gamesmanship, but it may end up being wise that they did the schedule the oh, way. It it- it was it absolutely
0: – I mean, it wasn't – it was honest. Let's put it that way. It was very honest what their um, their intent was in, in making sure Alabama had the easiest uh, possible road, although they did get Kentucky. That's still – Kentucky's good, but they're still like eighth in the conference overall, something like that. Right. But yeah, Georgia, LSU, those teams were handed very low-rated – uh, ninth and tenth opponents and it makes perfect sense you want two teams in the playoffs, yeah. so that's they, they are the by far the most honest about their intentions that's well the, the most
1: strategic They you are the most cynical or the most whatever but it's, <laughs> your, your honesty um but what you're saying is look it depends on whether they really take hits there but it also depends on what shakes out in other conferences right i mean you could see clemson notre dame you know if they put if they both put together great seasons you'd have two a c c teams that are quite serious well what if yeah. Miami really comes on oh you know, with i mean um the Eric King i mean that that could be really exciting if that works out if texas and oklahoma if Texas finally steps up and plays um at Oklahoma's level, they might have two teams um yeah. and then you know let's let's just hope for b y u to go blow keep blowing <laughs> through their you know eight game schedule
0: on the on the list of things that I haven't gotten to write about yet um a surprisingly dominant Miami's right at the top of that list. If they have a Miami, if they have a Manny Diaz defense and the combination of De'Ara King and Red Lashley, um, you know, new offensive right. coordinator who's right. worked with right. both Gus Malzahn and Air Raid Sunny Dykes, um, if that creates some perfect hybrid spread explosion and they get hot, like that's the that would I would that would be the most fun scenario on the table, I think, for this. Yeah, player, that's
1: watching good. That
0: Miami team take off.
1: Well, I, 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 heartily concur on that. And it, it, if I think it, what programs I'm most interested in watching around the country outside of mine is probably Miami. I think yeah. it's probably Miami. Uh,
0: knowing that they could disappoint us right out of the case. They could lose to a- UAB on Thursday. Like it's not, <laughs> n- none of this is set in stone, but there is at least a scenario on the table where they get really hot and they're really good. And that's what I'm rooting for.
1: Okay, well, this takes us to our last hypothesis, which is at least as much wishful thinking as hypothesis. And that is, who is the best dark horse candidate for the playoffs? And so the hypothesis is, that's the University of Texas, of course. The University of Texas is the leading dark horse program for not only the playoffs, but in this funny year when anything could happen, the national championship. Why yeah, is this, that
0: correct, Bill? This assumes that Texas could ever be a dark horse um, just by well, Have
1: Well, have you been paying attention the last
0: year? <laughs> I have. And we all, but like the, 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 you know, the extent to which we go, Oh, they're back now, you know, and that running yeah. joke that has, you know, they, they are certain, there are certain definitions maybe that doesn't apply, but no, they are as far if you just eliminate like the top five, six, seven, eight teams and you look at everybody else, Texas has a clear path. And as I've written a couple times this offseason, I mean, they are without a doubt better situated to take advantage of all the hype they got last year. <laughs> That they right. weren't ready for um they don't have a, a secondary just loaded with sophomores this year they're juniors now and because a lot of them got hurt they have just tons of experience in the in the secondary they've got tons of experience obviously at quarterback they've got a good offensive line still don't know if they can defend the run but they have but the knowns there are pretty high even you know no. even having that jake smith kid basically putting up duvernay's stats like to to the number in terms of like success rate and whatnot. He, he that's going to be the biggest loss that they have to deal with, and they might already have the replacement. Uh, yeah. ready to go. So um, they are really interesting. My biggest concern with Texas is, you know, we're, we're, we've all been trying to guess like what um what what uh, the 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 loss of a spring practice and and the weird yeah. scheduling and everything. How is that going to affect what kind of teams and, you know it's pretty easy to guess that if it has a negative effect on certain teams, maybe it's the one with new coordinators, two new coordinators. Right.
1: Town, two new coordinators.
0: Um, That's right. That's who right. didn't really, who were basically teaching their offenses and defenses on zoom calls this spring and summer. So <laughs> in that scenario, maybe that holds them back a little bit, I think because they have their quarterback back because Tom Herman's obviously been around a little while now that probably yeah. dims that to a degree, but it is a concern at least a little bit.
1: Well, I want to hear about other teams, but one last question on texas but because you just brought up about ellinger he's been around for four years seemingly forever starts practically every game of his entire career and it's college football is 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 studded with these you know glorious programs who ride a a four-year quarterback to the kind of peak performance it feels like a quarterback with that uh, one quarterback can do that in in college in a way they can't in pro and then that senior quarterback or that three-year starter quarterback a lot of the big stories are a big a lot of the um kind of standout programs come from standout years come from that kind of experience so that's something that as a long time friend, you kind of bank it on you, know, you got sam you got one last time with sam he's been there forever there's your burrow is that true is it true there, bill there's your joe burrow for
0: for 2020 that's new coordinator uh you know i, I will say though i i it was weird that, that he hired Tim Beck to start with as offensive coordinator. I didn't really love that hire, but then it was weird that he got rid of him after last year when their offense was top 10 in my numbers. But Mike Yurcich is a good coordinator, good play caller, and if he gets like – if he can improve Ellinger's uh, down, like verticality, that, that's yeah, been – right. that's such a big thing with, with Yurcich's offenses. If they can throw a really nice deep ball to go with everything else, that's going to be a really good offense.
1: Well, it could be fun. Uh, around the country, other teams you like? Because people have made these really chalky predictions. It's weird. We're living in this crazy, <laughs> volatile, uncertain world, and then you read these these columns, and people are going, yeah, it's going to be Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, and Florida, or maybe, maybe uh, you know, I don't know, Oklahoma. That's, that's what everyone's doing.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know how is how this is all going to affect. We don't know which game, like, suddenly Alabama is going to be starting a walk-on quarterback. So, you know, <laughs> if it's against Arkansas, they can handle it. You know, it, that's just fine. But, no, I think um, – understanding that the unknowns are so ridiculous everywhere and, and that they're just the, the landmines, just the, you know, Austin P losing the first game of the year in part because all their long snappers were quarantined at home. Right. Right. They snap a punt. Like that's, that, those are going to be situations and it's going to be fascinating, but just treating this as a normal, as much of a normal outlook as possible. One of the teams I'm really, really curious about is North Carolina. Speaking of Texas, Yeah. Okay. Um, I My number is usually in these situations where a team looks great in the bowl or, you know, scares a a, a good team like Clemson, say, early in the season. Um, the hype they get the next year is almost in, uh, undoubtedly uh, flawed, we'll yes, say. Yes, right. Like they, it's an overreaction. It's a bowl bump. It's whatever. Um, and so the North Carolina, combined with the fact that Mac Brown was recruiting well, North Carolina, it kind of – you see all these pieces like, wow, that's, this is false hope right here. There's no way – but then you look at how they actually played the last six games the last year. They were dynamite the last six games the last okay. year. They rose like okay. from the I think either the 40s or the 50s to the 20s in SP plus um, with the way they played, not just in the bowl but over the last half of the season okay. as a whole. Okay. And so when you combine that with the fact that they uh, are among the league leaders in my returning productions. Uh, uh, stat, you know the fact that they were almost all sophomores and juniors last year with a freshman quarterback, and they did that. That's a really good sign that they're going to be able to sustain those gains. Okay. So, I mean, obviously now they're dealing with hype, and you know, Mac yeah, yeah, yeah. teams didn't do a great job of that. <laughs> game,
1: so he'll win every he'll win every game, um, and then lose by fifty six to Clemson.
0: Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not terrible living, I guess. But they are a team I want to. I'm going to be paying close attention to early in the year because if they you know maybe they're a little you know they play a little hungover maybe they this is kind of a sophomore slump kind of year but they have a ton of athleticism and they've got a really really fun quarterback and in a system that's kind of made for him and they they could be real and i'm i'm in the acc if miami doesn't make a major breakthrough then you're kind of looking at notre dame versus north carolina for that second spot they could they could live up to that
1: that's great. Well, that's a good, that's a good thing for us to keep our eye on and it gives me a little hope that the ACC will be more interesting this yeah. year than it has been the last couple of years. My gosh. Um, all right, listen, man, thank you for bringing some data and real expertise to these academic hypotheses. Much appreciated. You've given us some things to think about. Um, I could not be more excited, Bill. I've, I've watched my, my colleagues get excited as baseball season's kicked in. Or, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I get it intellectually. I get it. But now that we're, you know, we're just days away from seeing, and let me, I'll just be honest about the University of Texas play football, I wouldn't give anything. I, it's like one game. I don't care what else happens. Just to get to see them play, that's what I'm excited about. Just full-on, honest report that I'm fired up. about, And, and, and I'm not proud of it, but it's there and it's visceral.
0: It is amazing, like the normalcy you feel. Like I was chatting with some with some old Espionation co-workers during the Central Ar- Arkansas Austin P game, with all the, the the turnover, top hat, and all those silly things that were happening in that game. And you're watching it, and you laugh at it, and you just it feels normal, even though you know it shouldn't, and you you shouldn't feel normal. <laughs> it still feels normal, and it feels great.
1: We can take normal. We can not feel guilty about normal for three hours or four <laughs> hours. As yeah, that's means. true. Mm-hmm. All right, Bill, always good to talk to you. Wish you the best. Keep up all the great work. We're talking to Bill Connolly. Bill, your Twitter account is at espn.underscore Bill C.
0: ESPN underscore Bill C. Yeah. I, I, I should have never put the underscore in there. It makes it a mouthful, but there it is.
1: There it is. Um, he's going to be writing regularly. You can see his stuff on espn.com. Always a pleasure. Bill, thanks, man. Have fun. Good luck. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, fellas, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. One hour on sports analytics, a little bit of coronavirus and a little bit of sports analytics mixed together. We are going to do this again next time for Matty D, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner. This is Cade Nass. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us in a week.